Scrum.org focuses on professional Scrum and supports people wherever they are on their learning journey. We help them to grow over time with ongoing learning opportunities and resources such as forums, blogs, and more. Share your knowledge and gain new insights. Visit Scrum.org to learn more. Good day, folks. This is Shane Hasty for the Infrequent Engineering Culture Podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Joy Eberts. Joy is a principal engineer at Splits and a recent Kukon speaker. Joy, welcome. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for having me. My normal starting point in these conversations is, who's Joy? <laughs> yeah, of course. So... As you mentioned, I'm a software engineer. I started my career at Microsoft on a team doing a bunch of R&D work, which was extremely interesting. I moved from there to a super tiny startup. I left when there were four people. So if that gives you any idea. From there, I went to Box and I was at Box for a number of years. When I joined, it was still fairly small. By the end, I don't even remember the numbers anymore. But yes, we were a public company and it's significantly larger by the time I left. While at Box, I started as a full-stack engineer. I took a trip through management, ended up as a back-end engineer at the senior staff level. From Box, then I went to Split, which is where I am now. Again, doing back-end engineering things mostly. At this point, I am a principal engineer. And I guess throughout the back-end engineering time, I've done a lot of interesting things around enterprise features. So a lot of compliance governance features. I've dug a lot into authorization and authentication, as well as some more microservices stuff. So splitting monoliths into microservices, domain-driven design, and thinking about architecture. And yeah, when I'm not engineering, I think the thing that most people know about me is that I run a lot. I'm an ultra runner. So if I'm not engineering, I'm probably running. <laughs> What's it take to be a principal engineer, to get to that height in terms of your technical career and technical job? What do people need to work on to aspire to get there? There's a ton of things. That's super broad. But I would say to dig in a little more specifically, as you advance from I guess just a software engineer through senior suite, a lot of it is just about getting better and better at writing code, at building the features you're given, really being able to do stuff independently, being able to design within your space very independently. Beyond that, I feel like the job starts to shift a little bit and it just keeps shifting more and more. Where as staff, you're starting to think cross team. And I know a lot of people, both my current company, past company, other companies I've talked to, they really struggle with this idea that the rubric is pretty clear getting up to senior suite. But once you get to staff, it's like, what do I actually need to do? I don't understand what I need to do. But the tricky part of that is that's actually a little bit of the point is like starting at staff, you're expected to deal with a lot more ambiguity and you're expected to be able to take a problem with very little idea of what's happening and be able to run with it, be able to figure out what's happening, figure out what's needed, figure out where to go from there. And you could almost see your career as being one of those problems. Like it's a little unclear what you need to do, but you just tackle that and you understand what does your business need? What does your larger team need? What kinds of skills are they missing? What sorts of problems do they have that people don't seem to understand? And then identify those and then start to dig in and really move those forward. I know that's easier said than done oftentimes. And then on top of that, I've also seen the mistake of people trying to get into some of this space before 
their team needs it or understands or like they've built up the street cred, maybe is the way to say that. And I mean, the other side of this then is being able to actually influence people and convince people that this is the right way to go. And in general, I would say the soft skills and the people skills almost become more and more important as you get higher and higher on this track. In a weird way, it starts to get a little bit more blurry with management. I mean, you're not actually managing people, but there's a lot more of like managing the projects, managing politics, managing relationships, <laughs> so on and so forth. You said that you took a leap out into people management for a little while and then came back. What were the insights that you took from that diversion? I went into people management in the first place because my manager at the time thought it would be a really good fit for me. He saw me doing a lot of project management and some of that side. And so he really encouraged me to try it out. And I wasn't sure. And my mentor at the same time also was like, yeah, you should really do this. I then got into people management and realized that I absolutely hated it. I spent about a year and a half to two years doing people management, depending on how you want to count it exactly. And a lot of it was just the more fuzziness around being able to feel accomplishment. So like when you're engineering, it's much clearer, like I did this thing, it's out there in the world. And even if it failed, it's clear, like this thing failed, it blew up, I had a production issue versus management, like, well, even if my team succeeded, did I really help them? I'm unsure, like maybe they would have succeeded without me. So that's kind of what I struggle with management. But you asked about what I took from management. I feel like a lot of what I gained there was more of this understanding, like I was mentioning around like the politics and how things actually worked and how people understand things. So to go into some more detailed examples, I guess promotions is one thing. So the company I was at, I guess I was at Box at the time, and we had like promotion cases. So like the engineer will put together this like large document saying that I should be promoted and this is how I meet the rubric and this is why. And then the manager will put together a thing and then a promotion committee would review it. And then you go like, you know, a decision is made, the manager can appeal and so on. And then you get your final decision. And I'd obviously seen the promotion packet side of it. And later I saw the promotion committee side of it. But the management part is interesting too, because you start to see the questions that the promotion committee is asking about like, I see this as the gap. Like for one person, it was something about like, yeah, but what exactly did this person do for the project? The project succeeded. It was great. You're saying that, you know, they helped a lot, but what are the specific examples? And being able to understand that then helped me to be able to say, okay, if I'm going up for the next promotion, I need specific examples. I need to be recording this stuff so that I can give it to my manager so that they can help support me. And in fact, one of the promotions I went through, I wrote up my case, and then I gave my manager a supporting thing that was like, in case you get questions about any of these things, this is like the answers to all of them. And so I was able to navigate that much more cleanly. I guess that's a very self-serving career side, but in a more general organization side, there's also stuff like you sort of get to understand, like not just what are the teams, but who are the influential people on those teams and how do things get done? If I have a problem that involves infrastructure, who is the person that I should know on the infrastructure team? That sort of thing. You get much more exposure across organization. I guess this also dips into a little bit of my identity. The women in tech group at Box was also a great way for me to get to know some people across the organization, because especially by the time I was post-management, we were starting to get fairly large. And so it gave me like an in on a bunch of different teams, which was useful as well if I needed to find out information and put that together. 
I think there's also a piece of being able to better help my manager help me. I remember I would get a question from a lot of my direct reports that was like, do you have any feedback for me? And my initial response is like, you seem to be doing fine. Uh, No. (laughs) But I realized then that if they asked more direct questions, I did have answers. So, you know, like if they said, how did I do at that presentation that I gave last Thursday? I'd be able to give them a lot of feedback. This is what went well. This is what went less well and so on and so forth. And so it taught me that I shouldn't expect much if I ask my manager, do you have any feedback? Instead, I should say like, identify what are the things I want feedback on and ask much more directed questions. The other thing related to that is I think every single person I managed would say, I want opportunities, right? Or like, I want a project that's going to help me get to the next level. But then when I get the projects, how do I match them with anyone? Like any of them could go to anyone. But if the person was much more specific, again, and said something like, I really want to work on my presentation skills, then if something that's going to involve that comes up, I know who to match it with. Or even like, I really want to dig into databases more Then again, like if there's a project involving databases, I know exactly who to give that to. And they're much more likely to actually get something too. So being specific in what you want and being specific in asking for feedback, generally being specific. is going to really help your manager to help you. And what was the experience stepping out of management back into the technical stream? Was it at the same company or did you shift organizations at that point? It was within the same company. It was a different department, I guess, within the same company. So previously I had been in what we called the enterprise team. I'd been there for a long time. They were sort of responsible for all of the features that large companies cared about. So like I mentioned before, the governance, the compliance, those sorts of features. When I came back, I moved on to a fairly new project that was spinning up that was around more workflow and specifically as a partnership with IBM that we were working on a joint thing. So it was new space, new manager. I was still somewhat working with everyone that I had before, but it was kind of a chance to reset a little bit at the same time, which was useful. Often that trip back is somehow perceived as being a step back. Was it or was it just a sideways shift? It was actually kind of a little bit of a weird case for me in that most of the time at our company, people would go from staff engineer to manager. And then when they went back, they got shifted back to staff engineer if they went back. Not very many people did, but a couple did. Mm -hmm. I, however, was a senior suite and then got promoted to manager. And so when I went back, they were like, well, everybody else is going to staff engineer, but you weren't actually a staff engineer before. So what they did was they left me with the manager title for about six months, and then they had me do a promotion packet, but they called it slotting instead. And at that point, they decided whether to give me the staff title or the senior suite title, and I managed to get the staff title at that point. So I would say because of that, it didn't really feel like a demotion to me. It felt like more of a sidestep because it was still above where I had been before. If I had been a staff engineer before that, especially if it had been a while, I might have viewed it differently, to be honest. But because of where I was, I would say it really did feel like a sidestep. That sounds like the organization had a pretty clear set of metrics and guidelines for you to work with. Yes. So having the, you mentioned the rubric more than once, having those sort of things in place is going to yeah. enable it. That sort of touches on a topic I know that you're blogging about at the moment, and we'll make sure we include a link to your blog in the show notes incentives and aligning incentives. How's that showing? I've actually thought about this since fairly early in my career, but especially recently, I've been thinking a lot about aligning incentives. 
basically every staff plus forum that I'm in, I feel like people are always talking about like, oh, it's so hard. I have to influence without authority, like, you know, blah, 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 blah. I can't get anything done. Honestly, two random thoughts on that first. I don't really feel like I had that much more authority as a manager. Maybe that's a little bit less true now. But back when I was managing, like the job market was hot. Like if people didn't like what I was asking them to do, they could leave. Like, what am I going to do? I didn't actually have that much authority over them. And so you're still kind of trying to convince people to do things on some level. So I kind of think that that's a little bit of an illusion. And like everybody is influencing without authority to some extent. The other thing I would say is like, it's also possible to influence with too much authority in some ways. I'm kind of mindful of this sometimes now in that, I mean, sometimes I want to get something done and I just want to push it through and like, yes, whatever. But there are a lot of times when I'm like, I think this is the right direction. But you know, if somebody really disagrees with me, I would love for them to challenge me so that they can test where I haven't thought something through all the way or whatever, right? Like, I don't want to shut down all of the other thinking because that's less useful. We're better together. So thinking through how do I make sure that I still leave a little bit of room for opposition, even if I'm trying to influence people and get things done. But yeah, so influencing without authority, people talk about that a lot. And I would say the biggest thing I've always noticed or I've always thought about is a lot of that just comes down to aligning incentives. Like, what are people incentivized to do? What are their driving motivators? So I have a lot of examples. The first one, this goes way back. So my first job, I was at Microsoft and we were supposed to be testing ideas and we were supposed to be testing risky ideas. So the idea is like, if we're testing ideas that are risky enough, about half of them should fail, right? Like, you know, only half of them should be good ideas. But we found that we had to really, really, really push to even get 30% failure because as humans, we like to see things succeed. And, you know, you start to dig into an idea and you really believe in it and you're likely to just like keep iterating and keep pushing on it until it's, you know, kind of a success somewhere. So to balance that, to even to get to 30%, we had to like, as a full team, celebrate every time a project failed and like really make a big deal about like, isn't this awesome? This is so great. It failed. And just kind of counteract the natural human desire to succeed. So there's things like that that are kind of just innate drivers for people. There's other things like, for example, this is kind of a funny one involving feature flags, which I guess is what my current company does, but this was at a previous company. But we had the problem everybody has with feature flags where you end up with like, more and more and more in the code base. And that's just like more tech debt, more branching code paths you have to deal with, et cetera. So one of the teams was like, we're gonna fix this and we're just gonna put a cap on the number we can have. We're just gonna, you know, can't add any more than 150 say, right? And if you try to add 151, you have to remove one first. And this obviously had some of the intended results in that we did cap it at 150, but it also had some unintended results as well. For example, if I was then making a very risky but small change, I was suddenly much less incentivized to wrap it in a feature flag. And suddenly I'm really questioning, like, is it worth the two weeks it's going to take to pull out another one in order for me to add a little bit of safety on top of this? And because people are incentivized to move fast, they're suddenly thinking, like, we're making this speed safety trade-off and different things happened. The other thing that happened is while people were sometimes incentivized to remove them, I also definitely knew people who were saying like, oh yeah, my team knows that we have to add one for this new feature coming up and we have this really easy to remove one that we know about. So we're just going to leave it in the code base until we have to add that new one. And so like, even though 
Before this, they might have just removed it because, you know, everybody knows that clay lamp is good. They were suddenly like, oh, we're going to hoard these things and we're going to keep them. So the incentives were changed towards this hoarding pattern, which is, I guess, an unintended consequence. So I don't know, things like this just really get me thinking about like, where are people's incentives? What do they want to get done? And what are they going to do as a result? And how do you think about in a situation like if somebody is really pushing back on you, you're asking them to do something, they're really pushing back. Why? What are their incentives? What do they want to get done? What do they want to happen? Why are they not doing this? Especially if they say like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea, but I'm not going to do it. Then it's a good point to dig in and say, well, why aren't you? What's stopping you? What can I do to change the situation so that suddenly you are much more interested in helping us move that direction? Advice to the mid-level software engineer who's looking to grow their career and move down the staff class and the staff, the staff class and move towards the principal engineer role. Where do they go? What do they do? A few different things. One I already touched on a little bit is like embrace ambiguity. Be a little okay with that and be willing to just dive into a problem even if you have no idea what's going on or you know where you're going with it. Break things down and take it step by step. So that's one thing. Another thing I've realized quite a bit is communication matters a lot. Being able to write, being able to speak, being able to just communicate is huge in terms of being able to advance your career. So I know I blog a lot. I actually enjoy blogging. It's part of why I do it. But part of it is it helps me organize my thoughts. But even apart from all of that, I think it's a very valuable thing to practice writing. Like if you're not comfortable blogging, like practice writing in other ways and, you know, make sure that you polish that skill. Because if you've done really, really great work, but you can't tell anybody about it or you don't tell anybody about it, it kind of like it didn't happen. So sadly, we like to think that the best people are always rewarded within our industry, but that's way less true than you would hope. A lot of it's actually what do we know about that happened? And like, what got visibility? What do other departments know that happened? Like I was talking about some of that promotion stuff before, but it's immensely helpful if like all the people on the promotion committee already know about that project that you did and already think it's a big deal. They're going to be like, oh yeah, she did, you know, that giant authorization move. Of course, that's awesome. Of course she should get promoted versus if it's some project nobody's ever heard of, suddenly it's much more of a struggle to be like, this is why this is hard. This is why this matters. This is why this should get promoted. But also back to the incentivizing people side of things too, like a lot of that is communicating and convincing people and like being able to talk to people about like, these are my ideas. This is why it's important. And also listening, like, why do you disagree? What should we change? And like being able to combine all of that. So communication, being able to I would say practice that as much as you're comfortable and maybe even more than you're comfortable, to be quite honest. Joy, some really, really useful advice here. Thank you very much for taking the time. We'll make sure that people have your blog and of course they can find your Tucom presentations as well. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. <laughs>